Hi, I'm Wendy Dean. And I'm Simon Talbot. And this is Moral Matters. This week, we're speaking with Ed Tafaru. He's the Senior Vice President of Operations at Rothman Orthopedic Institute in Philadelphia. And we brought him in because we thought it was really important to have the perspective of an administrator. We've talked to a lot of clinicians, but we are missing the administrator perspective. And the other interesting part of his work is that he works for a practice that's doing mostly elective surgery. So his perspective in the pandemic has been different than what you hear in a lot of places that are talking about the emergency room or the intensive care unit. We recorded this conversation in October of 2020. So it was in the lull between the initial surge of COVID and the second surge in the winter. And it was at a time when things were kind of starting to get back to normal, or at least what passed for normal in in COVID times. Unfortunately, Simon wasn't able to join us for this conversation, but we've talked to Ed several times in the past, and so this was just a continuation of the discussions that we've had. So let's go to Ed. Ed, thank you so much for coming and joining us on the podcast. As I said in the introduction, you work with Rothman Orthopedic Institute, and it's a private physician-owned practice. And I think most when most people think of a private physician-owned practice, they think of maybe a few exam rooms and a receptionist and a physician all working in a small office. But I wonder if you could talk with our listeners and kind of explain what Rothman is and what that physician-owned private practice looks like that we'll be, that we'll be talking in the context of. Sure. And, you know, I, I think it's really important that I emphasize in that, that as a uh, physician-owned organization, uh, our, our mission and vision has been to provide high-quality patient care, but also a, an organizational environment that allows physicians to thrive and maintain autonomy and independence. So um, we, we started with the vision of Dr. Rothman uh, over 50 years ago. Uh, as a single physician, and, and now we're up to in excess of 200 physicians. Uh, we have over 1,500 employees across three states, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and, Pencil- uh, and New York, and we're actually uh, expanding into Florida uh, in the uh, late 2020, uh, you know, the next several months. So, I, you know, I, I do see us as uh, an alternative model for physicians in a world where many physicians feel that their only real option is to go into an employment scenario with a large health system. Um, But, you know, we've been able to grow and maintain our independence because of our scale. Yeah. So can you just, can you say a little bit more about that? Because I think that's important to, for physicians to understand who aren't in that model. Yeah. So, you know, we have a, a board that is fully made up of physicians uh, who are shareholders within our organization. Uh, We are wholly owned by physician shareholders at this point. And um, we have a a very formulaic process that makes a physician eligible to be a shareholder uh, based on clinical production and academic production uh, and citizenship. And, uh, you know, we've used that to be attractive uh, and 
from a business strategy perspective, we've been very clear to uh, both physicians and health systems and you know commercial payers um, that we want to collaborate with everyone to improve the healthcare delivery model. And in the world of orthopedics, uh, that really transits into uh, evidence-based practice to reduce the total cost of care uh, and uh, take the the research that we've been very prolific at producing um, and bring that into clinical practice. Uh, so as we bring new physicians or new groups into our organization, we have the infrastructure to help those physicians adopt our clinical protocols uh, and, and really engage in uh, the, the latest and greatest ways of taking care of the orthopedic patient. So I think one of the important things that you're kind of describing there, but you haven't said outright, is that you you are continually monitoring what your physicians are doing and thinking about ways that you can improve on that practice. Am I, is, yeah, that, so, is that what and, I was hearing? Yeah, it is. And, and I would say, and I want to make clear, for me, what's appealing about our model is our physicians are actually leading that effort. And so it's not an administrator oversight. Um, it, it's an administrator partnership, uh, but they're the thought leaders and they're really driving the the intellectual curiosity and, and the um, consideration of ways that we might improve. Uh, and, and we do see that uh, in, in all sorts of ways. And some of it is in the, the very clinical application and some of it is in more of an operational um, how do we touch more patients? How do we um, reduce the number of touch points of, you know, a patient and, you know, this this um, COVID scenario with telehealth and virtual visits has been a fascinating one for us because I think we've, um, for the first time in orthopedics, been really able to experiment with which patients are, uh, you know, most appropriate for that. And, and uh, we have a number of physicians who are uh, pushing research studies uh, around uh, doing a physical exam through a virtual visit and um, ways that we can, uh, you know, see patients without them having to drive several hours to get in for a post-op visit or a follow-up visit. Uh, so, you know, that's exciting to me. And, and uh, it, it is that um, we're, we have a number of physician inventors in our organization and uh, they're, they're constantly uh, striving to do it better. Yeah. So the other interesting thing that you said there was that your patients travel a couple of hours to see you. So you're in three states, but you also have a huge catchment area in those states, correct? We we do. And, and a lot of that goes back to Dr. Rothman's vision, which was really on the emphasis of specialization in orthopedics. And so um, our providers uh, within the subspecialties, for example, a foot and ankle surgeon exclusively does foot and ankle surgery and really emphasizes being best in class in that field. And, and so often uh, we will get patients referred to us by um, orthopedists in the community that might have more of a general model um, where they might do a little bit of foot and ankle, but when it gets to complex foot and ankle, they want to refer it to someone who sees a lot of that type of um, you know, injury or, uh, you know, clinical scenario. So it, it's, uh, it, it does create a broad catchment area and uh, it's part of what makes our, uh, our research enterprise so compelling. We are known um, by many providers around the country for the, the different research 
uh, and clinical outcome studies that we've produced. And, and so that also creates a connection. Um, we have alumni who trained as residents or fellows within Rothman who are now sprinkled throughout uh, the country and uh, the, the region as well. And so those are also, we, you know, we consider them friends of the family. Sure. <laughs> sure. So give me an idea before the, before COVID hit, um, how, what was the volume of the practice in any given, say, week? Yeah. So um, we were seeing, um, you know, we were taking about 35,000 patient calls in a week to schedule, um, you know, from a, a visit perspective, uh, it was around 8,000, 8 to 10,000 visits per week. Uh, about half of those were new patients into the practice and, and doing about 1,400 surgeries a week across all of our geographies. Wow. That's, um, that's a busy practice. It, it is a very, very busy practice. And so, um, you know, as we mentioned before, you had, you had, you have offices in three different states in, in New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. And in March, each of those states in rapid succession, like within a matter of days, I think, each said, okay, we're, we're shutting down the state and we're shutting down non-essential healthcare. What was that week like for you? <laughs> so, so believe it or not, we had actually been a little bit proactive. Uh, I, I came from an environment where we had dealt with several crisis-type scenarios, hurricanes. And uh, so in late February, when uh, COVID was getting a little bit of press, but, you know, it was really China-related, um, we started talking about, well, what will we do? if there is some sort of, um, you know, mass illness scenario. And, and at the time, we were really focused on if we have a lot of employees who are unable to come to work mm. and either because they are sick or because they're um, unable to navigate childcare. And so we, we um, put together some materials on organizing our operation for that that we presented the first week of March at a standing uh, you know, operational leadership meeting. And, you know, so, you know, things then progressed and um, we pulled together our board in the, that second week of March and had a, a discussion and ultimately made the decision to um, postpone any patient who was scheduled with us who was uh, identified as at risk and those early at-risk criteria were primarily age-related, but also, you know, if there were other um, comorbidities or um, illnesses that, that could create risk factors. And so we, at the time, we were looking ahead two weeks and said, let's, let's postpone uh, and reschedule those patients. But otherwise, we were open. Our offices were open. We were doing surgery. So that was a Thursday uh, board discussion. Um, that Friday, I decided to set up a daily leadership huddle, um, not again, knowing how long it would go on, but realizing how important communication was going to be. Um, so that became a noon huddle. Uh, we then reconvened the board on Sunday and realized that our initial 
effort was probably not going to be in sync. And so we made a decision at that point to um, to essentially self-restrict and pause any care that we identified as non-urgent emergent, whether that was office-based care or surgical care. And, you know, I'll acknowledge uh, that there was a, a lot of discussion in our board about were we being too aggressive? Um, this was ahead of any of the governors at the state level. Right. That was about a week before. Yes. And uh, obviously, as a private practice um, that does a lot of what would be classified as elective or non-urgent emergent care, um, we were proactively taking a position that would have a significant financial impact. And so... Uh, it, it was certainly, again, uh, um, ultimately the board came to that decision. Uh, and at the time, we thought we were making that decision for two weeks. Uh, so, again, kind of looking at the last two weeks of March. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it was probably three or four days later that the states that we operate in um, all came out with, you know, restrictions on elective surgery. And, you know, I think we we chose to look at that as us you know, kind of validating our decision-making and thought process to be uh, conservative in our approach. Um, we, we thought we were doing something with the interests of our own employees and, and our broader community. Um, PPE, in the sense that um, is has become normal in a COVID scenario, was not typical for our office setting. And uh, it, it took us uh, about four weeks to acquire uh, the quantity uh, and, and different components of PPE that allowed us to feel uh, that we could, you know, safely bring in a, a, a patient uh, who was not identified as urgent emergent. So uh, it was, you know, it was certainly, a, a, you know, we were moving very fast and a lot of intense conversations during that time. And uh, I think that everyone was doing their best with the information that we had, uh, which is, right. you know, in hindsight, you know, I think we, we did it reasonably well. Right. And it, and it sounds like what the driver for that decision was partly to protect your patients, but also to protect your staff. It, it was, yes. And, and, uh, and, and in some sense, even the broader community mm-hmm. and one of the things that we experienced, um, and it kind of spoke to these, er, those early days of COVID where, uh, People weren't really sure how severe it was. Um, patients were very upset with us. They wanted to be seen, and um, and in particular, and they wanted their surgery. They wanted their surgery. They they wanted their injection for their knee pain, um, or just their their visit. You know that some of them have waited a week or two or three for their visit with a specialist. Um, and you know what what. What we found hard was actually articulating to them that their care was not urgent emergent. Uh, and, you know, I think that to the individual patient, it always feels uh, urgent or emergent and uh, certainly necessary. Uh, so that, that was one of the challenges that we found was the messaging around that. And, and we couldn't tell them exactly when we would be able to um, reschedule appointments, you know, so initially we kind of postponed indefinitely, um, you know, our internal conversation was two weeks, but our message to patients was yeah. more of an indefinite message. Right. 
So, so one of the things that I, I think is interesting is you anticipated two weeks, and then as as we learned more about COVID and it and we watched what happened in New York and then started happening in Boston, it became clear that it was going to be much more prolonged. And I think a lot of the attention at that time was on those who were at the front lines, who were in the emergency rooms in Philadelphia, in, in New York, in Boston, who were taking care of the COVID patients. But there was another population that you were um, tied to, which is those who were kind of sidelined. Right, so all those the, the 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 suspension of elective surgery, which went on for a long time, and so what was that like for for your practice? You know, um, I have always said it is better for everybody when surgeons are busy. Um, they want to be busy, and when they have a lot of time, um, <laughs> all of a sudden. You know, we as an organization experienced, uh, and and we are already physician governed, and you know we have a number of physicians who participate at every level in different aspects of decision making, but everybody wanted to be in every decision, yeah. and uh, you know I, I think that in some ways, in a, a bit of an ironic way, our physicians became um, very free in their time at a time when administratively we our team was probably working harder than they had ever worked and mm. you know a period of you know seven day weeks and um probably you know 16 to 18 hour days um and you know i i i think it it did create dissonance within our organization um and and i think even within the physician group some specialties um, by by the nature of them have more care that is urgent and emergent right and you heard two different streams of thought from them um one was you know sort of that we should get hazard pay um we're we're, we're keeping the the lights on in the organization through this uh, but the other was the critique from some of the physicians who were on the sidelines of those who were operating, that maybe their decision to operate was um, a little bit in the gray zone of, is that really urgent emergent or is, you know, could that be postponed? Um, what was interesting was that as that period extended from the initial two weeks into an open-ended um, but but clearly it was, you know, it was four weeks and then it was, you know, looking at six weeks and uh, right. the the collective group of both physicians and even our non-operative uh, surgeons and non-operative physicians um, came to identify that it's not just that you can say that a procedure is urgent, emergent or elective. It's actually that you have to look at the whole picture of a patient and their context and um, you know, right. how long have they been waiting for a procedure? What else they have going on in their life? Um, because I think that we we saw a real desire to pigeonhole a quote unquote elective surgery, uh, and and you know, so I thought that was again ultimately a healthy dialogue for us as an organization. Um, but in in the heat of it, 
there was a real uh, intensity and, and, you know, both sides wanted the administrative team to arbitrate in some way. And, you know, it's one of the benefits of a physician-governed organization. We typically push those types of things back to our physician leaders. Um, I don't want, as a non-clinical right. administrator, to be judging what care is elective or urgent-emergent. So, Right. And, and I can imagine, I mean, I, I can imagine that as you get away from those, those tense conversations, that your practice will be better for it, or at least your patients will be better for it, because you'll have a more holistic view of the patients that you're taking care of. I think that's right. And, and I think we also grew as an organization in recognizing that it's okay for two different surgeons, even within the same specialty, to come to a, a different conclusion. And, and you know, it's, a, it's part of a, a broader recognition that as we grow, um, it can't always be a one-size-fits-all mindset. And I think that was part of, again, you know, as a society looking at these three governors and how they handled things and, and how they're now talking about handling the possibility of the second wave or third wave, I guess, depending on who you, who's counting it. Uh, you know, I think they're, they're looking to be more nuanced and not as broad, um, you know, at least in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, our understanding is that they do not foresee a scenario where they would restrict elective surgery, you know, across across the whole state again. Yeah. I mean, I think it's I think we've all had to adapt and and rethink our values for lots of things in the context of this extended period of of duress. Yes, yes, for sure. It's uh, and, and I think that's a place where. uh Again, our physicians, uh, we saw them question the management team in a way that was was difficult in the midst of it. And I think that um, as the owners of the organization, uh, they wanted to participate in a way that is not necessarily typical of how they participate in operational, you know, granular decision-making and, and clearly with a bent towards reducing the financial impact on them as owners, where um, I think the management team felt that it was our responsibility to ensure that we came out of the other side uh, a, a sustainable enterprise. And so to right. not make decisions for short-term financial uh, benefit that would really harm the long term. It was it was always our view that going into it, we were such a strong organization that yes, we would absorb a, a financial hit this year, um, but ultimately we were positioned to come out and be very successful. And so we we really experienced the the questioning of our um, management judgment and kind of value system. Uh, relative to the physician shareholders and, and governance structure. And, and I, again, I think it it's always healthy when you get beyond the emotion and the heat of it to reflect on that. But in the moment, I think it was stressful for all and um, right. certainly created some, some you know, longer-term uh, wounds that are probably still healing. Well, I think there's... I think everyone 
who everyone in this pandemic had two layers had or maybe multiple layers of stressors right we had we had what was happening at work we had what was happening at home and you can't you can't help but have those bleed across and so you know asking any organization to maintain an even keel through that would probably be um unrealistic but I also think that that what you're saying is, um, and, I, and I hear what you're saying, is that coming out of this, you may have new understandings. And I, and I, I wonder if it's possible that um, there will be new respect for the management team from the physician side, because you all have kind of lived, the, almost lived a clinician's life, right? Where you were working 24-7 for weeks. Yeah. And that's an interesting way to frame it. I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I, I do think that uh, we, we have since put in place some, I'll call them governance uh, parameters that we formed some subcommittees and uh, put both physicians and management onto them, subcommittees of our board. And, and part of it is to create a, a more organized process so that in the next crisis scenario, there's a group of people that have already been in the detail. Uh, right. Because I think part of what we experienced was we were having to, as a management team, explain a level of detail to people who um, wanted to be in decision-making in roles, but didn't really have the, the understanding that they needed. And so, you know, I, I do think that's a positive. I, I think one of the things that became very clear is that the physicians um, in, in a fee-for-service healthcare system, they understand that when you work more, you get paid more. And so therefore they worked backwards from, well, if, if we're not working, you know, we're getting paid less. Right. Therefore, you know, should the same principle apply to our, our management team and our employees. And I think it, it, it wasn't intuitive to many of our physicians that many of our management team was actually working, you know, twice as hard as normal uh, because of how, you know, extraordinary the circumstances were. Um, but even then, you know, we made decisions that we felt um, shared the burden financially across um, and what I would say in a progressive way, so the higher levels of the organization took more of the burden and our frontline staff took less of the burden. Um, but we were fortunate to not ultimately lay anybody off. Um, and, and that was a commitment of our management team to our employees and one that we, we really organized a lot of our decision-making around. I think our physicians had trouble understanding that and, and felt like, you know, well, wait, but you still could have laid off these three people and saved a little bit of money. And we felt like that was a line that once you cross it, it's very hard to go back and, and regain that trust with your overall employee group. And so, so, so uh, you were making decisions based on your culture, the culture that you wanted to have coming out of it. Yes. And, and I think that's one of the things that I credit Mike West, our CEO, um, who, who both you know, develop that culture with Dr. Rothman over the past 21 years, um, but also really fought for it in the heat of the moment. And, 
Uh, I think our team, the management team, supported Mike in that. I think we we know it's our responsibility to you know manage that culture um, and and continue to develop it. Uh, and you know we certainly we did a round of town halls in uh, late July and August with our employees, and and we were very open about you know the ways that we would um, th- do things differently and the mistakes that we made. Uh, you know, during COVID, but but also um, trying to emphasize that we were proud that we had been able to fulfill that commitment, and that was important to us. And um, we wanted to make sure our employees understood that some of the other pain that they may have experienced was a function of us trying to fulfill that commitment. Yeah, and and so I think um, that is a powerful statement to both your organization and to your employees. Um, I want to, I want to ask you a little bit about um, this, this. So, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, you're trying to make sure that the organization survives the best that it can. Clinicians are trying to make sure the patients get taken care of the best that they can. And sometimes those were in conflict, right? And you and I have talked in the past about moral injury, and how, you know, the essence of moral injury is transgressing deeply held moral beliefs. And it's clear that that, that occurs with clinicians. But I, got, I have gotten the sense over time, and especially in the context of the pandemic, that it's not limited to clinicians in healthcare. And I wonder if um, you felt like, particularly during COVID, that dynamic arose for your, for your management staff? I, I do. And, you know, I think there were several aspects of that. Um, we, as non-clinicians in healthcare, um, I, I've worked with many, and I think there's almost a universal sense of um, feeling every bit as called to taking care of people but not in the bedside sense. And, you know, I, I personally have always said that if I do my job well, I'm taking care of the people who take care of the patients, whether that be a physician, a nurse, a medical assistant. And so, you know, I think that that was challenged in this scenario um, in, in two ways. And, and one was in seen at the individual level, some physicians who seem to become more concerned about the financial impact um, than about that care delivery. Um, and, and then alternatively, where um, the, the broad sort of administrative team, management team, was questioned in our commitment to the mission and, and to taking care of patients. And um, but I'll also acknowledge that one of the uh, the decisions that we made that we relatively quickly undid, but but you know created some harm. Um, we we took a group of our um, non-shareholder physicians and initially put them onto a furlough, and basically felt like if they're not. If we're not providing our full volume of services, um, we don't need as many physicians. And, um, you know, 
there's a contractual dynamic and I can avoid all of the detail, but effectively it's a cash flow thing because our contracts are annual. So we would still end up owing them, you know, their income for the year. Um, but we were really challenged in that because this turned into a question of us taking away their ability to practice as a physician and making a business decision um, that superseded their identity as a physician. And, and in the discussion around that, a number of comments were made about how the management team cannot relate to that dynamic. And, you know, I think those, those do create, um, again, a sense of us and them that I've always felt proud personally of um, maintaining a sense of alignment with the, the clinical providers and, and the clinical staff, because um, I, I do think that that commitment to the mission is important. So, you know, that was a very specific way. And we ended up basically changing it so that they could practice under a modified compensation scenario so that we were still able to achieve the financial cash flow impact, but, um, you know, not as much the, uh, the impact to the physician individually. Um, but I think even the idea that we had considered it, uh, left a mark. Right. So it almost seems like, um, what happened was you guys, you, you guys in management were doing your job so well that it was almost invisible that, that, you know, that those gears just turned and people got what they needed and it took a pandemic when it when the gears got gummed up for folks to say oh wait a minute like uh, 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 even and even in the pandemic you guys were still doing that job really well um so so that <laughs> almost having to explain well you know this is what's all behind this is all the stuff that happens behind the curtain that we don't that we don't actually pull back for you very often but okay, look, we'll show you, we'll let you in behind here. That example. And I remember sort of saying, look, I, I know that it's a pandemic and you know, the volume is, you know, 15% of what it normally would be. Wow. But I still need an IT infrastructure right. that keeps the computer systems connected. Right. You know, and you know, all of that, that, that's, that's a team and, and it doesn't go away. And, you know, kind of going through, you still need a call center and staff to answer the phones that are ringing. Um, and, you know, I, I think that it, it was interesting because it did, it, it made clear that there is a gap in, in the understanding of all of the components, especially because I think as you started, even some of our physicians think of us as, you know, that historic small private practice. Right we are a large enterprise. We have a hundred employees in a call center answering phones every day. We have 150 in a business office dealing with the revenue cycle and all of its components. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, all of those things, we have an HR team and IT team, uh, that, you know, they don't just shut down, uh, because your volume is down. And right. I, I think that, again, I see that as an opportunity as you come out of it, uh, to do some, some more education, we've prided ourselves on transparency. So it's not that we haven't wanted the physicians to know, but there's also an aspect of, um, you know, if we do our job well, they shouldn't have to worry about the IT right. 
And they were, and before the pandemic, they were busy. They were too busy to even have time to know, you know, to, to attend to that. So um, as you open back up, well, <laughs> you know, open up to clo maybe close down again. But, you know, as we go through these cycles, what are... What is the main worry that you have besides taking care of patients in the way that they need to be taken care of as you start to open back up again in the interim between waves or surges? Yeah, so we we are fully open at this point. Um, all of our locations, uh, we had for a period of time reduced offices, but our, we are fully open at this point. Um, you know, what I see and and... I have to be honest, we have outperformed our expectations so that, you know, as we enter the fourth quarter of the year, um, we're about 10 to 15 percent behind last year as, a, as an enterprise, um, which if someone had told me that in early April, I would have shocking. Um, so we're yeah. very pleased with how it has gone. Um, Although I think what what the legacy of that is now sort of carrying forward this overemphasis on trying to get back everything this year, as opposed to um, re-engaging our strategic initiatives and priorities. And I think that at some point you have to accept that this year is not a banner year. Um, again, we outperform. Right. We feared we would be. Uh, but, you know, I, I, that's where I want to make sure in our organization and as we do come together with the physicians and the management team, uh, that, that we still take a strategic perspective. That's part of what's driven our success for the last 20 years. Uh, and, and we've told our employees and our physicians, um, unless the government authorities mandate it, we would intend to stay open. We feel a lot more confident that we understand how to keep our employees safe, how to keep our patients safe. Right. We innovated rapidly around virtual visits and telehealth and, and could easily um, ramp that back up. And so I, I think that, you know, it may be that individual offices or facilities might temporarily close if there were an exposure scenario, but, but otherwise um, it would be our intent, of course, to follow government authorities and, and, you know, whatever regulations they put out, but otherwise to try to stay open. So we're getting to the end of our time, and I have one last question. If you could disabuse folks of the most common misunderstanding of the management side of healthcare, at least in your context, what would you want people to know? So my best outcome will be knowing that I in some way supported the provider team, that physician and clinical staff to meet a patient where he or she is, identify their underlying need and develop a treatment plan that ultimately yields the patient outcome that the patient wants. And I see that as my motivation and driver and definition of success. And 
I don't think any part of that is financial in nature. Um, and I, in that sense, I believe um, that I am fully aligned with our clinical team as a non-clinical manager. Um, so, you know, that would, it's a little bit of a wordy answer, but you know, I, I really, it's often said that the management team only cares about the money. And, I, you know, I, I think that you can't escape it. It's, uh, it, there is a, a reality to how do you organize to provide that scenario that I described? Right. And how do you resource it effectively? Um, right. But I never want to lead with that. I want to lead with that patient care and take care of the clinical team. Yeah, and I think that's um, you know what we what we often say at Moral Injury is uh, we say that um, in a lot of places the clinician is answerable to all the different departments in the healthcare system. Um, and what we wanted to do is flip that script so that those all of those departments were actually in support of the clinician at the front line. And it sounds like one of the critical, critical things you've done is to develop a culture where that is the case, where, where the management team feels that they're, what they are there to do is to facilitate care um, so that the clinicians can really function at their optimum in service of the patient. That's right. And, and, and I believe that the physicians should challenge if they see or feel ways that we are inhibiting that or creating right. barriers or, um, you know, friction. Um, I, but I also know that they need to see that we are on their team. We are, we are there to have their back and, right. Uh, you know, I, and I, I chose to come to an organization that's physician governed for that reason. I, I want it to be clear that I, I am here to support them, um, but also that I have expertise on how to best. Mm -hmm. do that. And, and I think that's where that mutual respect comes in. Absolutely. And I, I appreciate from my physician colleagues that I've certainly felt that. Um, you know, it, it, again, it, it, uh, it comes out in, in little ways, but I, I know that, um, they see me as a member of their team. Yeah. And that's the other critical piece is that, that mutual respect that you bring things to the team that they can't bring to the team and vice versa. That's right. Well, Ed, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you coming and, um, sharing all of this with us and, um, best of luck as things open up and um we go forward into the winter thank you thank you very much i appreciate the time wendy you know listening to this wendy i think that rothman um and its experience is really a microcosm of some of the larger challenges that we see going on in, in medicine throughout the country and as with many other um situations during covid COVID really uncovered some of the things that have otherwise stayed under wraps. It, it took problems that were out there and made them far more obvious to people. Um, I think perhaps one of the things you hear in this episode is some of the tensions within the organization. Yeah, so it was really clear that there were there were tensions between the physicians who were who were doing elective surgery and those who were doing more urgent and emergent. How were they defining those things? What was, you know, the tensions between who was on the front lines in that practice 
doing those urgent surgeries and who are who's on the sidelines um and tensions between physicians and management um who you know the tension between caring for their patients and then caring for the organization as a whole yeah and it's it's also very important and i think this comes up a lot of times uh to notice that some of the difficult conversations that happen when these tensions occur are what actually make an organization better or help things to work better yeah so <laughs> having to go through those sometimes difficult conversations about what what are what are our values as a practice what are our values as individuals and how do we realign those how do we make sure that we're staying true to our strategic initiatives and to the purpose that we see for this organization as a whole and wendy there are a few things that i know you specifically thought that sort of stuck out as you were thinking about this particularly things about leadership and management can you run through sort of the things for you that were key the most remarkable part of this was ed's perspective of what his position is there to do. He was so clear about being a servant leader and about his focus being facilitating clinicians in providing excellent care. That collaboration between management and physicians, it wasn't always smooth, but it almost always, when they could come together and and have those challenging conversations, it meant better care for their patients and better outcomes for the practice. It was clear that two of the important keys to that good collaboration is that both sides have to have mutual respect for the skills of the other, but also that communication is really the key to working collaboratively together for the better of the organization. Yeah, you know what's great about these things is these just keep coming up, right? Uh, these are themes that we hear over and over again. Absolutely. And, and I, love, I love what he said was that, you know, I believe physicians should challenge us as administrators. And that if we're creating barriers or friction, they should hear about it. But at the same time, the physicians should know that they're, they're there to have their backs. And he believes that he's there to support them. And that's the kind of leadership that would be great to see broadly across medicine. Absolutely. So in a couple of weeks, we're doing a special episode. And that episode's goal is to answer your questions, uh, particularly questions about moral injury. And these can come from anywhere. These can come from uh, ideas you've had while listening to the podcast, uh, questions you've had while you've been at work, things you've read about. Um, you can send an email to us or send a voice memo to us at podcast at moralinjury.healthcare. Yeah, we'd really love to hear what you're thinking um, and to answer those questions. So thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. You can find links to continue the conversation on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter on our website, fixmoralinjury.org. Please subscribe to the upcoming episode, rate us online and leave a review so it's easier for others to find us. Join us next time for our conversation with Dr. Mark Buski and Joe Bellissimo, who led the radiology practice through difficult times, focusing on the admission of outstanding service to patients and doctors who referred them. Until then, stay well and stay in touch. Be well. Be well.